Section seventeen of the Crimson Circle by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter forty. The escape. The outrage upon Raphael Willings had produced something like a panic in the cabinet. Mr. Parr learned how profound was the concern when he returned to headquarters, and the Prime Minister was justified in his anxiety. The Crimson Circle had not stated when the next blow would fall or upon whom. The inspector was sent for to Downing Street and was closeted with the Prime Minister for two hours. It was the first personal consultation he had had, and it was followed by a meeting of the inner cabinet, a fact that was duly recorded in the newspapers. It was said, but without authority, that the life of the Prime Minister had been threatened, and this statement was neither denied nor affirmed. Derek Yale, returning to his flat that night, found Inspector Parr waiting on the doormat. "'Is anything wrong?' he asked quickly. "'I want your help,' said Parr, and did not speak again until he was sitting in a comfortable chair before the fire in Yale's sitting-room. "'You know, Yale, that I've got to go, and the Prime Minister is considering the advisability of my going a little sooner than I'd expected. There has been a Cabinet Committee appointed.' and they are calling into question the methods which headquarters are employing, and I have been asked by the Commissioner to attend an informal meeting at the Prime Minister's house tomorrow evening. "'What is the idea?' asked Yale. "'I am to give a sort of lecture,' said Parr gloomily, "'and explain to the members of the Cabinet the methods I have employed against the Crimson Circle.' You probably know that I have been given unusual powers, and that I have not been asked to tell the government all I know. I intend doing that on Friday evening, and I want your help. "'My dear chap, you have it before you ask it,' said Yale warmly, and Parr went on. "'There is still a lot about the Crimson Circle that is a mystery to me, but I am piecing it together.' At the moment, I am under the impression that there is somebody at police headquarters who is working with them. "'That is my view, too,' said Yale quickly. "'Why do you say that?' "'Well,' said the slow Pa, "'I'll give you an instance. Young Beardmore had a photograph that he found in his father's papers, and this was posted to me. It arrived all right, with the seal of the envelope intact.' but when I opened it, there was a blank card. I have since discovered that he gave that card to Thalia Drummond to post. He swears he stood on the doorstep and watched her slip it into the letter-box on the opposite side of the road. If that is the case, the envelope must have been tempered with after it reached headquarters. "'What kind of a photograph?' asked the other, curiously. It was either a picture of an execution, or the condemned man Lightman, for I think it was taken on the occasion when they tried to execute Lightman, and failed. It came to old man Beardmore the day before his death. A great number of things seem to have happened to the victims of the Crimson Circle the day before their death, and was found by Jack, and, as I say, sent on, "'By Thalia Drummond,' said Yale significantly. "'My view is that you can exonerate the people at headquarters. 
This girl is deeper in the Crimson Circle than you imagine. I searched her house tonight. That is where I've been, and this is what I've found. He went out into the hall and returned with a brown paper parcel, opened it, and the inspector stared. A gauntlet glove and a long, bright-bladed knife were exposed when Yale cut the string and stripped away the paper wrapping. This glove is a fellow to that which was found in Froyant's study. The knife is an exact pair to the other. Parr took up the gauntlet and examined it. Yes, this is the left hand, and the one on Froyant's desk was the right, he agreed. It is a worn motor glove. Who was the owner? Try your psychometric powers, Yale. I've already tried, said the other, shaking his head. But the glove has passed through so many hands that the impressions I receive are very confused. At any rate, this discovery confirms the theory that Thalia Drummond is in the business up to her neck. As to the other matter you were speaking about, he said, as he wrapped the knife and glove carefully in the paper, I shall be most happy to assist you. What I want from you, said Parr, is that you shall fill in the spaces which I cannot fill. He shook his head. I only wish Mother could be there, he said regretfully. Mother? said the astonished Yale. My grandmother, said Mr. Parr soberly. The only detective in England, bar you and I. It was the first time that Derrick Yale ever had reason to suspect that Mr. Parr possessed a sense of humour. It was typical of that period of excitement, when the name of the Crimson Circle was on every tongue, that sensation should follow sensation. But probably no incident created so much excitement as that which, in scrawling headlines, greeted Derrick Yale as, sitting in bed, sipping his tea, he read the newspaper the following morning. Thalia Drummond had escaped. People escape from prison in works of fiction. They've been known to make a temporary getaway from dread Dartmoor, but never before in the history of the prison service had a woman escaped from Holloway. And yet the wardress unlocking the door of Thalia Drummond's cell in the morning found it empty. It took a great deal to shock Derrick Yale, but the news temporarily paralyzed him. He read the account of the escape word by word, and in the end he was as mystified as ever. But there it was, in cold print, officially admitted, and communicated to the early morning press by the government with unnatural haste. Owing to the unusual importance of the prisoner and the character of the offence alleged against her, extraordinary precautions were taken to guard her. The patrol which usually visits the ward in which her cell was situated was doubled, and instead of hourly, half-hourly visits were paid by the officers on duty. It is not customary to look into every cell on these occasions, but at three o'clock this morning the wardress, Mrs. Hardy, looked through the observation hole and saw the prisoner was there. At six o'clock, when the cell door was opened, Drummond was missing. The bars of the window were intact, and the door had not been tampered with. A search of the prison grounds showed no trace of her footsteps, and it is almost impossible that she could have escaped over the wall. It is equally impossible that she could have left by the ordinary means, since it would have necessitated her passing through six 
separate doors, none of which had been forced, all through the gatekeeper's lodge, which is occupied throughout the night. This new proof of the Crimson Circle's omnipotence and extraordinary powers is very disconcerting, coming as it does at a moment when the lives of cabinet ministers are threatened by this mysterious gang. Yale glanced at the clock. It was half-past eleven, and then he looked at the newspaper and saw that his servant had brought him an early edition of one of the evening papers. He was out of bed in a second, and not waiting for breakfast, rushed off to headquarters to find Inspector Parr in a very good humour, considering all the circumstances. "'But this is incredible, Parr. It's impossible.' She must have friends in the prison. That is my idea entirely, said Parr. I told the commissioner, in the identical words, that she must have friends in the prison. Otherwise, he said after a pause, how did she get out? Yale looked at him suspiciously. It did not seem the moment or the occasion for flippant talk and Inspector Parr's tone was undoubtedly flippant. Chapter 41 Who is the Crimson Circle? Yale learned no more details than those he had already read, and took a taxi to his city office, which he had not visited for two days. The escape of Thalia Drummond was a much more important affair than Parr seemed to think. Parr! An awful thought occurred to Derrick Yale, John Parr, that stolid, stupid-looking man. It was impossible. He shook his head, yet put his mind resolutely to the task of piecing together every incident in which Inspector Parr had figured, and in the end, impossible. He muttered again, as he walked slowly up the stairs to his office, declining the invitation of the lift-boy. The first thing he noticed when he unlocked the door was that the letter-box was empty. It was a very large letter-box, with a patent flap device, designed so that it was impossible for an outside pilferer to extract any of its contents. The wire cage reached almost to the floor, and letters that came through the slot under the door had to fall through revolving aluminium blades, which made the letter-thief's task a hopeless one. And the letter-box was empty. There was not so much as a tradesman's circular. He closed the door quietly and went into his own room. He took no more than a pace into the interior and then stopped. Every drawer in his desk was open. The little steel safe by the side of the fireplace, concealed from view by the wooden panelling, had been unlocked, and the door was now open. He looked under the desk. There was a tiny cupboard, which only an expert could have found, and here Derek Yale had kept the more intimate documents connected with the Crimson Circle case. He saw nothing but a broken panel and the mark of the chisel that had wrenched it free. He sat for a long time in his chair, staring out of the window. There was no need to ask who was the artist. He could guess that. Nevertheless, he made a few perfunctory inquiries, and the lift-boy supplied him with all the information he needed. "'Yes, sir. Your secretary has been this morning, the pretty young lady.' She came in soon after the offices were open. She was only here about an hour, and then she left. Did she carry a bag? Yes, sir, a little bag, said the boy. Thank you, said Derrick Yale, and went back to headquarters, 
to pour into the phlegmatic Mr. Parr's ear a tale of rifled desk and stolen documents. "'Now I'm going to tell you, Parr, what I've told nobody else, not even the Commissioner,' said Yale. "'We think of the Crimson Circle organization as being run by a man. I happen to know that this girl has met the man who initiated her into the mysteries of the gang, whatever they are. But I also know that, so far from being the master, this mysterious gentleman in the motor-car takes his orders, as everybody else does, from the real centre of the organisation, which is Thalia Drummond. "'Good Lord!' said the inspector. "'You wonder why I had her in my office. I told you it was because I thought she would bring us closer to the circle, and I was right.' "'But why dismiss her?' asked the other quickly. "'Because she had done something which merited dismissal.' said Yale, and if I had not fired her then and there, she would have known that I was keeping her in my office with an object. I might have saved myself the trouble, apparently, he smiled, because this morning's work proves that she knew what my game was. His thin, delicate face darkened, and then he said almost sharply, When you have told your story tonight to the Prime Minister and his friends, I have a little story to tell which I think will surprise you. "'Nothing you can say will ever surprise me,' said Mr. Parr. The third shock which Derrick Yale received that day came on his return home. The first half of his surprise was to find that his servant was out. The one woman he employed did not sleep on the premises, but she was supposed to remain in the flat until nine o'clock in the evening. It was exactly six when Derrick Yale came in to find the place in darkness.' he turned on the light and made a tour of the rooms. Apparently, the sitting-room was the only apartment which had been disturbed, but here, whoever the intruder had been, and he could guess her name, she had been very thorough and painstaking. It was not necessary for him to seek out the servant and discover what had happened. She had been called away from the house by a message purporting to come from him. He guessed that much. And whilst she was away... Thalia Drummond had examined the contents of the flat at our leisure. "'A clever young woman,' said Derrick, without malice, for he could admire even the genius which was employed against himself. She had lost no time. Within twelve hours she had broken jail, ransacked both his office and his flat, and had removed documents which had a vital bearing upon the Crimson Circle. He dressed himself leisurely, wondering what would be her next move. Of his own, he was certain. Within twenty-four hours, Inspector Parr would be a broken man. From a drawer in his dressing-room, he took a revolver, looked at it for a moment speculatively, and slipped it into his hip pocket. There was going to be a startling and a sensational end to the chase of the Crimson Circle, an end wholly unforeseen by the spectators of the tragic game. In the white lobby of the Prime Minister's house, he found a guest, the excuse for whose presence he could not fathom. Jack Beardmore had certainly been a sufferer from the activities of the Crimson Circle, but he had no part in the latter incidents. "'I suppose you are surprised to see me, Mr. Yale,' laughed Jack, as he took the other's hand. "'But you are not more surprised than I am to be invited to a meeting of the Cabinet.' He chuckled. "'Who invited you? Parr?' To be exact, the Prime Minister's secretary. 
but I think Parr must have had something to do with the invitation. Don't you feel scared in this company? Not very, smiled Derek, slapping the other on the back. A youthful private secretary bustled in and ushered them into the severe drawing-room, where a dozen gentlemen were talking in two groups. The Prime Minister came forward to meet the detective. "'Inspector Parr has not arrived.' He looked questioningly at Jack. "'I presume this is Mr. Beardmore,' he said. "'The inspector particularly asked that you should be present. I suppose he has some light to throw upon poor James Beardmore's death. By the way, your father was a great friend of mine.' The inspector came in at that moment. He wore a dress suit which had seen better days, a low collar with an awkwardly tied bow, and he seemed an incongruous figure in that atmosphere of intellect and refinement. Following him came the grey-moustached commissioner, who nodded curtly to his junior and led the prime minister aside. The two were engaged in a whispered conversation for a little time, and then the colonel came across to where Yale was standing with Jack. "'Have you any idea what sort of a lecture Parr is going to give?' he said, a little impatiently. "'I was quite under the impression that he was making a statement by invitation, but from what the Prime Minister tells me, it was Parr who suggested he should give the history of the Crimson Circle. I hope he isn't going to make a fool of himself.' "'I don't think he will, sir.' It was Jack's quiet voice that had interrupted, and the Commissioner looked at him inquiringly until Yale introduced the young man. "'I agree with Mr. Beardmore,' said Derek Yale. "'I have not the slightest expectation of Mr. Parr making a fool of himself. In fact, I think he's going to fill up a number of gaps and bridge over seemingly irreconcilable circumstances, and I'm ready to fill in a number of spaces which he may leave blank.' The company seated itself, and the Prime Minister beckoned the inspector forward. "'If you don't mind, sir, I'll stay where I am,' he said. "'I'm not an orator, and I should like to tell this yarn as if I were telling it to any one of you.' He cleared his throat and began speaking. At first his words were hesitant, and he paused again and again to find the right phrase, but as he warmed to his subject he spoke more quickly and lucidly. "'The Crimson Circle,' he began, is a man named Lightman, a criminal who committed several murders in France, was condemned to death, but was saved by an accident from execution. His full name is Ferdinand Walter Lightman, and on the date of his attempted execution his age was twenty-three years and four months. He was transported to Cayenne, and escaped from that settlement after murdering a warder, and is believed got away to Australia. A man answering his description, but giving another name, was working for a storekeeper in Melbourne for eighteen months, and was afterwards in the employment of a squatter named MacDonald for two years and five months. He left Australia in a hurry, a warrant having been issued against him by the local police for attempting to blackmail his employer. What happened to him subsequently we have not been able to trace until there appeared in England an unknown and mysterious blackmailer 
who signed himself the Crimson Circle, and who, by careful organization and display of remarkable patience and energy, gathered around him a large number of assistants, all of whom were unknown to one another. His modus operandi, the inspector stumbled at the phrase, was to find out somebody in a responsible position, who was either in need of money or in fear of prosecution for some offence which he or she had committed. He made the most careful inquiries before he approached his recruit, who was finally interviewed in a closed car driven by the Crimson Circle himself. Usually the rendezvous was one of the London squares which had the advantage of having four or five exits, and a further advantage of being poorly lighted. You gentlemen are probably aware that the residential squares of London are the worst illuminated streets in the metropolis. Another class of recruit the Crimson Circle was very eager to secure was the convicted criminal. In this way he dragged in Sibley, an ex-sailor of a particularly low intelligence who was already suspected of having committed murder, and who was the very man for the Crimson Circle's purpose. In this way he secured Thalia Drummond. He paused. A thief and an associate of thieves. In this way, too, he found the black man who murdered the railway director. For his own purpose, he put in Brabazon the banker, and would have taken Felix Marl, only, unfortunately for Marl, they had been associated together in the very crime for which Lightman nearly lost his life. More unfortunate still, Marl recognized Lightman when he met him in England, and this is the reason why Marl was eventually destroyed, the murderer employing perhaps the most ingenious method that has ever been used by a homicidal criminal. You can well understand, gentlemen, he went on. They were following the little man with strained interest. The Crimson Circle. Why did he call himself Crimson Circle? It was Derek Yale who asked the question, and for a little while the inspector was silent. He called himself Crimson Circle, he said slowly, because it was a name he had amongst his fellow convicts. About his neck was a red birthmark. And I'll blow the top of your head off if you move. The heavy caliber Webley he held in his hand covered Derrick Yale. Put your hands right up, said the inspector. And then suddenly he reached out his hand and tore away the high white collar which covered Yale's neck. There was a gasp. Red, blood red, as though it were painted by human agency, a circle of crimson ran about the throat of Derrick Yale. End of section 17